Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, thank you for uh, today. And thank you for every person that walked through these doors to be here. We pray, Father, that um, as we open your word, you would speak to us. Pray for uh, each family that's represented, uh, each marriage, each business, God, each neighborhood. Thank you for what you're doing among us. We give you this time. Thanks for the privilege, God, that, that your word is open and it can speak to us. And that is our prayer. Father, uh, you know my words are pretty meaningless unless you show up. So I humbly just ask that you do that now. Thank you for all that you're going to do through this day, and we give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 22, Scripture says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It says this is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. It says that uh, we're to love God first and love others like we love ourselves. And at the end of the, your life, uh, it won't matter how much money is in your bank account. It won't matter how many awards you've won. It won't matter how big your business is. What will really matter is did you love? Did you love the people in your life? Did you love God with all your heart? Because it says in the end, relationships are the only thing we take out of this world. We've been asking the question over the last couple of weeks is, well, what if you knew you only had one month to live? How would you live your life? Would you love any deeper? Would you speak any sweeter? Would you give forgiveness that you'd been denying? And that lyric said, I hope someday that I actually get the chance to live like I was dying. So what if you knew you only had one month to live? Would it be any, deep, any different for you? Chris opened up our uh, series a couple weeks ago, and he said this statement that a life of no regrets is a, a life lived for Jesus and him alone. That a life of no regrets is a life lived for Jesus and him alone. And over these four weeks, we're looking at four principles. The first one was last week that we talked about living passionately. Today we're going to talk about uh, what it means to love completely, then to learn humbly, and to live boldly. Psalm 90 said these words, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Why don't you say that out loud with me right now? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So there's something about our days that God intends for us to learn from. There's something about our days that wants to teach us each and every moment that there is a purpose, but that it is that our days we would gain wisdom from them and we would grow. And so there's something today that God has for each of us if our minds and our hearts are open to learn. So I want to invite you on this venture, adventure to number your days and to learn what it means to love God completely to give your very self to someone or to something bigger than yourself and to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. There's a guy who uh, 
loves life, and we had him speak here uh, this last year, Bob Goff, and if you missed it, uh, he was awesome. And he's actually going to be back here December 3rd and 4th, uh, so you want to mark your calendars, and if you were here, you know what I mean, you better invite somebody with you because this guy is unique and he is passionate. But he wrote an amazing story about his uh, adventure with his kids. And once his kids turn 10 years old, they go on a special trip, and so this time it was his little girl, and they usually plan like two days in advance. And so she decided she wanted to go to London. And so he booked tickets to London. And here's what he said in his book. There's a special relationship between a dad and a daughter, something God designed on purpose, I think. It's not lost on me that of all the names God could have asked us to call him, we most often refer to him as father. Well, I think that's because he has the same kind of relationship in mind for us that I had in mind for my kids. I think a father's job, when it's done best, is to get down on both knees, to lean over his children's lives, and to whisper, where do you want to go? Every day, God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where every detail is planned out and there's a rigid itinerary. He simply just invites us. God asks what it is he's made us to love. What it is that captures our attention. What feeds that deepest, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of the world he made. And then he leans over to us and he whispers, let's go do that together. Lindsay and I landed in London and we hit the ground running. There was no waiting to counter at the jet lag and there wasn't any luggage to get. We saw everything we could possibly cram into three days. We went to Buckingham Palace. We went to the Tower of London, the huge London Eye Ferris wheel. We ran through Hyde Park barefoot. We tried to make a guard and a bearskin hat giggle. We took in a play at the West End. We ate fish and chips and we said, quite, as we toasted each other with soda pop, lifting our pinky finger towards the queen. We didn't rest, we didn't sleep, and we didn't know where we'd stay, but none of that really mattered. And of course, the last thing we did before heading back to the airport was what every little 10-year-old girl wants to do, have high tea at the Ritz. And we sat bleary-eyed at a small, beautifully apportioned, perfectly British table. A stoic server brought us our goodies, and I only made it through one finger sandwich before I looked across the table and saw a 10-year-old girl who would be 35 someday, taking her own kids on the same kind of adventures. And I thought about what God must see when he looks at us. I looked at my 10-year-old girl. She was turning 35 in my mind, and I imagine he sees who we'll all become too if we start RSVPing yes to all his invitations and go after those things he's made us to love. It's not all planned out for us either, and I think that's where most people get too nervous to take the next step. But know this, when Jesus invites us on an adventure, he shapes who we become with what happens to us all along the way. I love that. When Jesus invites us on an adventure, he shapes who we become with what happens all along the way. I think if you or I would have met the Apostle Paul before his conversion, I don't think we would have liked him very much. He wasn't the kind of guy you want to take a long trip with or uh, be assigned to a roommate in college for a year. He was highly ambitious. He was egotistical. He was radical. He was ruthless. Here's what he said about himself in Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my previous ways of life in Judaism. 
how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. He doesn't have any problem bragging on himself, does he? How would you like it if your new freshman roommate said when you came in, hey, I was the captain of the football team and valedictorian of my high school. I was the leading scorer on my basketball team and my dad's the president of the college. Now, who are you? That's Paul. It's not the person you'd be praying for as a roommate. But he said in Philippians 3, let me tell you who I was. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I love this, I'm faultless. I was great at it. He was driven. He was a type A personality. He had all the credentials to be rapidly rising in the political standings of Judaism. But he gave up all his personal ambitions because one day he had an encounter with the living God. And God turned this egotistical man upside down and he radically changed his life. And he continues on in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3 and he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider that loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And he served his life loving God completely and wanting every person to know who he was. And when he came to the end in 2 Timothy, he said this before his death, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the times for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He had poured out everything as a drink offering to God. And he said in the end, all of this stuff, all the things I accumulated, all the things I was good at, it didn't matter because the only thing mattered was that I loved God completely and I loved people as I loved myself and I shared the good news of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we are. Paul is writing to this group of people in the church and he's thanking them and he's affirming them in their faith. He speaks of the impact his ministry had on them and now they were becoming a model of believers for all to see. In the face of strong opposition, they were people that shared the love of Jesus, not just in the good news, but in who they were. Their motives were pure. Their authority was of God. Paul says in chapter one, going into chapter two, that he didn't go to, to receive flattery or personal gain, but he came to care and love for these people. And it's amazing that this once arrogant, self-centered, egotistical, ruthless man now speak words that bring life to people. And he starts out kind of in this tender, loving way in chapter 2, verse 7. And he says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live a life worthy of God. 
who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. He says, we cared, we loved, we delighted, we encouraged, we comforted, we urged. He was saying, we gave ourselves over to you so that you might give yourselves over to God completely and to serve him with everything that you are. He was reminding them that he had told them, I'm inviting you into an adventure with Jesus and I'm asking you to love him completely. So what does that look like? What's it look like for you and and for myself? What's it look like for our church family to be people that love completely? Three words this morning that I'd love for you to write down. Acceptance, forgiveness, and commitment. Acceptance, forgiveness, and commitment. Paul walked in and he met these people right where they were. He didn't try and change them. He just said, we came in and we cared for you and we loved you and we comforted you right where you were. He told the church in Rome in chapter 15, he said this, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another in their uniqueness, in their gifts, in their culture, in their differences. He says, accept them because this is going to bring praise to God in your life. And to accept others means that, you know what, you and I have to stop trying to change others before we'll ever be able to accept others. If I'm trying to change the people in my life, guess what, I'm going to miss out on learning actually how to love the people in my life. And to really love them, I need God's power to help me understand them. We cared, we loved, we delighted, we met them where they were. And Paul didn't come in to change them. He knew that was God's deal. But as a mom loves his children, he said, we came in just to care for you and to nurture you and to love you. And acceptance means, hey, stop trying to change them and start figuring out how to cherish them. You haven't really accepted someone until you stop trying to really change someone. Because let me tell you, if you don't know by now, you don't change them. It is the Holy Spirit that changes them. I started to think to myself, there's so many people that uh, I wish they were just like me, you know, because everything would be a lot easier if they were just like me. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Not that everybody would be just like me, because that would be bad, but like you. If you thought everybody's going to be like me, it's going to be a lot easier. But guess what? God brought us all in our uniquenesses and our differences together, and all of those unique gifts he uses to glorify himself. How many of you married somebody that's completely opposite than you? Any hands? A few of you. And you thought that was really good, and it is. But guess what? Opposites attract, and then what we found out is opposites attack, right? (laughs) Opposites attract, and then opposites attack. And so many times we forget that, that Christ is calling us to accept one another in our uniqueness and the great gifts that we've been given, and what leads us to attack is a few things. First, it's misunderstandings. They pile up quickly, don't they, in relationships? The beginning of a relationship, everything seems so positive, man. You're facing uh, one another and everything's going great. And then all of a sudden you hit a a misunderstanding. (laughs) And the opposite things that drew you together are the things that are now tearing you apart. So those opposites attack. And then we see that we look and our human beings, as human beings, it's not only misunderstanding, it's miscommunication. And then it's misinterpretation. And before you know it, our relationships aren't accepting one another. We're actually battling one another and fighting one another. 
I love what Donald Miller said. He said this, any fool can create conflict. It takes an emotional genius to broker peace. (laughs) In your relationships, would you be seen as a, a person who brokers peace or creates conflict? See, it's not natural for you and I to accept people into our lives as they are. What's natural for us is actually to try and change people. That's what we do really good. It's supernatural to accept the people in my life just the way they are and work actually on my own faults and my own character flaws that I really need to work on and allow God's Holy Spirit to change everybody else because most of the time the issues start right here with me. And Paul comes along and he says, listen, you want to be people that love completely? The first thing you have to do is accept one another. And this is going to bring honor and glory to God. Second thing he says is this, forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 says, get along with each other and forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person. Because the Lord Jesus forgave you. And the only place we get that ability to forgive is from the cross. Because you'll never have to forgive anyone in your life more than Christ has forgiven you. Think about that. You'll never have to forgive anyone in your life more than Christ has forgiven you. And so many times we hang on and we don't forgive as Christ has called us to forgive. And we miss out on so many things that God wants to do in our life. Mistakes, misunderstandings, the desire to put ourselves first, all of our faults and our humanities, many relationships are forever abandoned on the mountains of mistakes. And every one of us has been hurt by someone or something. And it's so easy when we're hurt in a relationship to build this mountain of bitterness around our heart to protect ourselves from being hurt again. And we build up this bitterness, and we think it's protecting us, but what it's doing is it is breaking us. Because really when that bitterness has turned from anger to the bitterness that has surrounded your heart, it poisons you and your relationships, and no relationship can get over the mountain of bitterness. I remember my father gave me one time a piece of advice. And it was pretty simple and profound, but he said, Matthew, when someone asks your forgiveness, you forgive them. And then he left the room. That was it. There was no but, there was no and, there was no if. When someone asks your forgiveness, you forgive them. And I think what he understood was that if I don't forgive The person it's going to affect most is me. And many of us have looked to people that have inspired us and wondered how in the world could they forgive in situations and circumstances and and turmoil in their life that was so overwhelming. And one caught my attention of a couple years ago, and we all saw it when in South Carolina a church was overrun and nine people were killed by a, a man that walked into the church at a Bible study and opened fire. And there was a young girl who was there, and her grandpa was the pastor, and he was killed. And she decided that, along with many other parishioners, she wasn't going to let her anger turn to bitterness. And she made a choice that day to forgive. 
And I'd love for you just to watch a few minutes of her story on the screens. Two days after the shooting, a bunch of us marched to Mother Emmanuel. We were clapping and singing spirituals like, Victory is mine, victory is mine, victory today is mine. As we were getting up to the church and singing these songs, we heard this foreign sound coming from the middle of the street. And we turned around. The Jewish community of Charleston made a circle in the middle of the street and did the Kadash, which is their Hebrew prayer of the dead as a gesture of solidarity with us in that tragedy. The following day, the surviving families came together for Ruth's bond hearing. With emotions running high, a few of the family members approached the front of the courtroom to confront the man who had murdered their loved ones. You took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. I forgive you, my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Give your life to the one who matters the most. Christ. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. But may God have mercy on you. I'm certain that at the time that my grandfather served in the army, and at the time that he even grew up, that he was mistreated simply because of the way that he looked. He never in his life would have been the kind to harbor negative feelings. He had to forgive them so that he could go on and live in love. And she knew there was only one way that she could truly honor his memory, by forgiving his killer. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. What started as a show of forgiveness in the courtroom has now become a movement that Alana calls Hate Won't Win. It is inspiring communities all over the country and it is all in honor of her grandfather to show you that I can love you and you can love me and we can work together to, to better our community. That's what Hate Won't Win movement is all about. I know that he's looking down on how we've chosen to carry on his legacy, that he would be very, very proud of what we're doing. While the tragedy within these walls will never be forgotten, the nine lives taken out of hate live on in the hearts of those who have chosen to love. One thing that we can say for now is that there was this city called Charleston who refused to listen to the voices of madness and chose wise counsel and handled the situation with grace and dignity. Knowing my grandfather, he wouldn't have had it any other way. Yes, I lost my grandfather. Yes, other people lost their lives. Yes, hate brought us here. But look where love is going to take us.
four words in your life that will become giving to others. And really simple, but really hard to say. Will you forgive me? Three words that will bring life to you. I forgive you. I never understood that when I was a young man and my dad said that to me, that I would have to face that many times in my life. And I remember 13, 14 years ago, walking back into a room, not wanting to be in a room with a group of people. And I wasn't expecting what was going to happen to happen. But when every one of them looked me in the eyes and individually said, will you forgive me? I had a choice in that moment. I didn't want to be there. And actually in my humanity, I didn't really want to forgive. But God, in his supernatural grace, allowed me to say, I will forgive you. And I remember the moment in the room like it was yesterday. There was something supernatural that took place. There was a healing that I can't explain. My dad also told me, don't ever burn any bridges because you never know when you'll have to cross back over that bridge again. Paul says, you want to be people that love completely? Accept, forgive. And the third word is commit. In John chapter 13, Jesus was hanging out with his disciples, and he was about ready to wash their feet, not just to be an example, but actually to empower them. And in verse 6 through 9, he comes to Simon Peter, and the scripture says, uh, Lord, are, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And no, said Peter, you, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus says to him, hey, just let me simply come and wash your feet. See, you want to look like me? You want to reflect me? It's in the simple acts of selfless service. And Jesus gets down, and I don't know if you've ever experienced somebody washing your feet, but it is a very humbling experience when somebody kneels over and they take your shoes off and they wash your feet. And Jesus said, in the simple thing, Simon Peter, here's what I want you to do. I'm giving you an example, but really what I'm doing is I'm empowering you to make a commitment to my Father and to me that you're going to go serve this world, and nothing is too small for you to do. And he went and he washed the disciples' feet. He empowered them to selflessly serve this world and commit to loving God and loving people with everything that they were. It's been said that uh, great occasions to serve God, actually, they come seldom. But little ones surround us daily. Philippians 2, Paul said, For God is working in you giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. And Jesus bends over and he says, let me serve you. 
not just as an example, but to empower you to go and change the world through your selfless acts of service. In one of the Peanuts cartoons, Linus is uh, sitting and watching TV, minding his own business when Lucy comes up and demands that he change the channel. And he says to Lucy, why do you think you can just come in here and, and change the channel? And Lucy said, because of these five fingers. She says, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together into a single unit, they form a weapon too terrible to behold. <laughs> and Linus says, what channel do you want to watch? <laughs> and then Linus turns around and he looks down at his own fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> it's a picture of the church. Somebody's a finger, somebody's an eye, somebody's a toe, somebody's a hand, somebody's a head. And all of us come into this place Five different services in high school and junior high. All of us have our likes and our dislikes and our pleasures. We come with all of our individualness that God created us. And it's a supernatural thing that a church is still here after 104 years. I mean, really think about it. Just hanging out with your family at home, man, it's hard to do sometimes because the five of us get in arguments and can't figure things out. Think about thousands of people that walk into a place and Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to accept one another and all your gifts and all your uniqueness and all your quirks and all your hangups and all your brokenness. I want you to love people completely when they walk into these doors. And so many times we come as individuals and we think it is all about us. And I wish I could make everything about you. I wish, honestly, that I could have a temperature that everybody was happy with. I, I wish that, you know, everybody was happy with everything we do. I'm not even happy with everything we do. But we all come in here and we have all these individual things. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to lay them down. I want you to give it up. Because when you do that, there's a picture that outside these walls people see and the world is desperately needing to see. And I tell our young staff... And those guys that were standing up here, I said, you don't really have to worry about any attack from the outside. We do a good job right within our walls. You don't have to worry about that. But look out for church people. And I think we come and so many times we form our fists. <laughs> and I think God's saying, man, if you could take all those gifts and if you could organize them and figure it out, you could actually go change the world. We have a value here that's called selfless service, and it's seeking, seeing the needs and responding to them practically, emotionally, and spiritually. And to do that, it takes a commitment. It takes a commitment for us to die to ourselves and to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility in mind, consider one another more important than yourself. Don't look out for just your needs, but look out for the needs of others. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. And I would love to see what it would look like at Friends if we were a church that loved completely. That when people walk in these doors, man, there's hundreds of them that don't look like us, don't act like me, don't act like you that are in great need of Jesus and his saving grace. I pray when they would come in these doors, when they walk on that parking lot, that we would be a church that would love completely. 
I pray we'd be a church that would accept and understand God doesn't want us to stay, any of us, right where we are, but he actually wants us to change us to reflect him. That we would accept them and begin to pray that God would change them and mold them and create them as he's trying to do with us. That we would be a place where forgiveness just ran rampant. And we would be a place where commitment to Jesus was everything we did. I'd love to have a church like that. 1 Corinthians 13 says these three words. Love never fails. That's why if you love completely, Scripture says you don't fail. If you want to succeed in business, let love be your primary motivation. If you want to succeed in your family, it says love never fails. You want to have a church that reflects Jesus? It says love completely. And I know it's a lot easier said than done. And I know this, in your own strength, none of those three things will happen. But here's what Paul says. And I'm going to close by reading the entire passage of 1 Corinthians 13, and I love the way the message translation put it. It says, if I give everything I owe to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say or what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Love puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limits. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. God shapes who we become with what happens along the adventure and the journey of life. Today, will you be people that love completely? And what would your life look like if you only had 30 days to live? Right before I came on stage, I was looking at Twitter and Juan Hernandez, I think his name is, a baseball player for the Marlins, young, awesome prospect, was killed in a boating accident. And this guy who had everything and who was young and on top of the world and escaped from Cuba, comes to the United States, and Clint Hurdle, the, the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, just wrote a, a little article, and if you could find it, you need to read it because it was just unbelievable. And he said, I, I, I'm, I'm in shock, basically, is what he said. And he said, I want to live my life like it was my last day because one day there will be no day. And he said, Juan just went out on a boat and everything changed. God says this, live passionately, love completely, learn to walk humbly, 
and leave a legacy worth leaving. Today, may we be people that love God with all of our heart, all of our soul and our mind, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Would you stand? Jesus, thank you for your love today. Thank you that uh, you loved us completely and you still do just as we are, God, not wanting us to stay there, but you love us right now in this moment. And God, I thank you for every person that's in this room and, and, and I pray they would take a step towards you today. For some, that's acceptance of somebody they're having a really difficult time with. For some, that's either an act to forgive or to ask to be forgiven. And for some, it's a commitment God, to walk with you a little more closely, to serve you a little differently. God, to stand up and to, to step out. Whatever it might be, may we be a group of people that would step towards you today. I thank you for your grace that's bigger. I thank you, God, that we cannot do any of this in our own strength. But that when we rely on you and you show up, something supernatural happens. So by the power of your spirit that dwells in us, for those of us who call you our Father, would you empower us today? And God, would we reflect you in this place? So thank you. Thank you for what you want to do in us. And God, I thank you that you actually want to work through us. May we step into this adventure and allow you to continue to shape our lives to reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.